the, the reason he moved there is that following his release, um, he was offered a place there by a local prince. And remember that the, you know, the higher levels of society there, they owned very large tracts of land, enormous tracts of land, and they would sometimes give them out to people or have them farmed by large numbers of people. So he wanted the Balatanya to move into this part of his huge parcel of land. And as a result of that invitation, and clearly he was going to be treated with great respect there, the Balatanya accepted that, and he moved to the town of Liadi. Of course, many, many of his Hasidim followed him there and were there with him for the last 11 or 12 years of his life. So he's known as Rabbi Shnir Zalman of Liadi. Now, those years for him were, you know, very productive in the sense that he was no longer harassed in the same way as he was previously, and he was able to establish a great deal in terms of Yiddishkeit and Talmud Torah, teaching Torah during the course of those years. The very final chapter of the Balatanya's life is once again uh, difficult and full of challenges. Napoleon came on the scene in Europe and he began conquering Europe. Uh, he was moving his way and working his way toward Russia. Ultimately, Napoleon was defeated in Russia. There was a debate amongst Sadikim rabbis whether to be pro-Napoleon or against Napoleon. The position to be pro-Napoleon was that he believed in freedom and rights, the Western ideals that all people had rights, including Jews, and would, would not be persecuted. So there were many Jewish leaders who were in favor of Napoleon because it would, would free the Jews from their centuries of persecution and pogroms under Eastern European rule. And they were hoping that that freedom would bring a breath of life for the Jewish people. That was one opinion. The second opinion was that the Bal was inc including the Balatanya, who was of the second opinion, that although the Jews suffered more under the Russian rule, that the rights and the freedoms that they'd be given by Napoleon and then living in a more open society would bring about great spiritual annihilation for the Jewish people and assimilation. And therefore the Balatanya was a very fierce opponent of Napoleon. And he spoke it and he preached it. He was quite concerned that the Jews, given that level of freedom and entrance into society, meaning non-Jewish society, would suffer spiritually. If you ask me, I would say he was right. The, because of his opposition to Napoleon, and when Napoleon, therefore, and his armies started to draw near to the region of the Balatanya, 
So his life was in danger because they were after him. And they knew that he was antagonistic toward Napoleon. And the Balatanya waited until really the very last moment. And he was given word by Russian generals who were friendly with him that he has to leave now because his life's in danger. So he ended up leaving on Erev Shabbos, his town of Leidi, and the last five months of his life were spent fleeing Napoleon. So even though he had this chapter of a somewhat period of peace there when he left prison the second time and lived in Leidi for about 12 years, the last five months were full of turmoil going literally from town to town to town with his family, running away from Napoleon. And as Napoleon's army would draw near, he'd have to run further and run further and run further. And of course, uh, it was a very major operation because you had wagons and people and you had women and children they're running and you had the horrible weather of the Russian winter and a was freezing. So he was doing that the last five years of his life. And because he had a good relationship with the Russian authorities and the generals there, you know, they were able to tip him off at the beginning there that he needs to get out and get out fast. In that period of time, toward the end of that five months, on one of his journeys, the Balatanya fell ill. And some people attribute it to the very taxing, constantly escaping that he had to do in the freezing weather. So he fell ill, and it was in the town of Piena. It's a small town. And he died there in that town of Piena. And he was buried in a larger Jewish vicinity not too far away called Hoditz. So the Balatanya's kever is in the town of Hoditz. Uh, he was buried there, and that was 1813. Therefore, he lived to the age of 68. Uh, some of his uh, followers have pointed out that that is the gematria of Chaim, of life. 68 is Chaim. So there he's buried. And the Balatanya, therefore, is not buried, you know, in Ladi, where he lived, but in a different town because he was on the run when he passed away. The next Rebbe following the Balatanya was his son, Rav Dov Ber, and he is also known as the Mittler Rebbe. And it was the Mittler Rebbe who basically moved that Hasidus to Lubavitch. It was another town in Russia. And from that time on, until they came to the States in the 1900s, the Rebbe's of Chabad were in the town of Lubavitch, and that's why they're known as Lubavitcher Hasidim. Right, so that is the last chapter of the life of the very, very great Balatanya of Shnirzaman of Yisra. And we have good timing here because tonight is the Balatanya's Yortzai. Chafdala Teves, the 24th of Teves, is the Yortzai of the Balatanya. So you can think about him tonight and what we've learned about him and the tremendous amount of Torah that he spread and Hasidus that he spread and how influential he was really ad hayom hazeh to this very day.
No, I wanted to just uh, close this biographical part. Yes, Vacheva, please. Um, I believe I believe so because the way that it writes it here in the book is his whole family was running, and it it said a few of the people, one of his brothers, for example, who were in different places at the time, were not part of that. It didn't mention that his son was somewhere else. So I'm assuming that, but I'm really not sure. Not positive. Okay. Uh, the next Rebbe, by the way, after the Mittler Rebbe, was the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Nachman Mendel Schneerson, and another very, very great person. Just to get the history right, the Balatanya was the first Rebbe of Chabad. His son was the Mittler Rebbe, the second Rebbe. The Tzemach Tzedek was the grandson of the Balatanya, but not the son of the Mittler Rebbe. He was the son of the Balatanya's daughter. Right? So the next generation after the Mittler Rebbe was not the Mittler Rebbe's son, it was his nephew, his sister's son. Those are the first three Rebbe's of Chabad. The Balatanya, the Mittler Rebbe, and the Tzemach Tzedek. So I'd like to read for you the, a, a very beautiful idea, which is written here, of course, is taken from the Mashrav of the Balatanya, to kind of close on uh, a note in his life in, in a very insightful and, I feel, um, kind of uplifting insight. And he's talking about nigun because, of course, amongst Hasidim, Nagina, song, music is extremely important in Avodah Hashem. And the Balatanya wrote ten nigunim. And some of them are very elaborate. And in Chabad, they sing his nigunim at various different occasions. So it goes like this. A nigun, like speech, has letters too. Though in a more subtle sense. But there is an essential difference between the letters of nigina, music, and those of speech. The latter, those of speech, constitute a descent, while the former, music, an ascent. The function of the letters of speech is to reveal and convey to others subtle thoughts and feelings, in the process of which the abstract is materialized. So we're taking down a thought, which is high, abstract, and we're bringing it down into the letters of speech and expressing that idea. So that's a descending process. In the case of the letters of music, though, Nagina, the process is reversed. Their function is to elevate the self. Under the influence of Nigun, the person discards, as it were, his outer shell, at least temporarily, and reaches out to commune with his very soul in all its purity. The Nagina has a cathartic effect, purifying the mind and the heart, and elevating one to a higher level of Avodah Hashem. So Nagina then is striving upward with one's emotions or experience, and you put that into the song or the melody, and you're going in this direction. Ascent. Whereas speech is taking an idea, bringing it down, and expressing it, descent. I would say it's certainly the case that if a person 
strikes the right chord in the speech, that they can uplift people, that's for sure. But the process of getting that idea into spoken form is a descending process. That's not a criticism, it's just the difference between them. And then secondly, he says that the Balatanya, as did other great Sadiqim, assigned to Nagina not merely a secondary role as an aid to spiritual elevation, but a primary role as a mode of Avodas Hashem in and of itself. Since the Nigan is capable of arousing the most latent forces of the soul. That's a very esotistic concept. Do you look at a nigan as helping you to serve Hashem, creating an atmosphere, and then you're serving because of that atmosphere? Or is the nigan in and of itself an act of Avodas Hashem, an experience of Avodas Hashem? And the Valatani is saying here, the way he sees it, is that the nigan is an experience of Avodas Hashem in and of itself. Not just to create a hechsher, you know, an opportunity to serve God, but it is avoda. It's very consistent with the way the Levim are described in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Gomorrah, and also brought down by the Rambam, that their shir is sherus. The song of the Levim is in and of itself their service of Hashem. So some people think of the songs of the Levim as creating a certain atmosphere, an elevated atmosphere in the Beis HaMikdash, which it most certainly did. Beautiful songs and beautiful instruments. So it did create that atmosphere. However, at the same time, that was the avoda of the Levim. That was their, the way they served Hashem was through music, one of the ways they served Hashem. So I think that you really see both parts of the idea illustrated in the Beis HaMikdash. It did create an atmosphere, and it was also the actual avoda of the Levine. Yes, please. I'm trying to understand this. Um, the Levine were commanded by Hashem to have that particular role. And in the case of the Balatana, as beautiful as the Levine was, it was commanded. So how is that Hashem? Mm-hmm. Right. So Avodas Hashem is really, this is an idea expressed by the Ramchal and Derech Hashem and others. It's both the things that we're commanded to do and also the things that we're not commanded to do. So if you have a Chiyuv, so most certainly that is Avodas Hashem. You have, you have a mitzvah to do, so you do it. But there's a whole part of our life which is not commanded, so to speak, it's the way that we choose to, shoot, to serve Hashem in the areas of rishus. There's no express statement, do this, but we realize that we've come to the perception that this is the way I serve Hashem in a very, very strong way. So when a person does that, they're actually serving Hashem. You could also say it this way, another example. This is certainly a madrega. A person earns a living. So earning a living is a means. Support your family, support, support Torah, support important institutions. It's a means. However, if a person looks at their living as the way in which they're expressing themselves, 
not the only way, in which they're expressing themselves in the world, their parnasa can be avodas Hashem in and of itself. The way they go about doing their job and how they do it with honesty and with amuna and bitafon and with rachamim and deen and all those things, it becomes avodas Hashem in and of itself. So I think that's what the Balatan is saying about the nigan. That it can be an experience of true avodas Hashem. It's taking a person directly to God. Not to a situation where he can serve God. Yes, yes please, sir. Mm-hmm. So what happened is the Churban Beis Hamikdash. So whatever David Hamelech put into those songs in terms of Nagina and however he meant it to be, and I don't know what that was, but whatever it was, it was manifested in the way the Levim sang and played in the Beis Hamikdash. And that music was part of the beautiful Avodah Hashem there. At the time of Hurban Habayis, that was all lost. All the Nagunim and all the music of the Beis Hamikdash went into Golis along with the Jewish people. So we don't have any of it. Now they do say, you know, Tzadikim have said, <clears throat> that just like people go into Golis and find their way back to the Jewish people in Israel, and Nigan does also. So there are stories about certain Rebbes who heard a tune, wherever they were, Poland, Russia, and they recognized the tune as having Kedusha in it. So then they brought it back, you know, to Avodah Hashem. It was incorporated in part of that group's music. Sometimes with some changes, but essentially the idea was that they saw or they perceived a nigan that was in Golus and now had found its way back. So you have that idea, and I always wonder about Jewish people who go from one society to another as we have run from one country to the next over the course of our Golis, and there's no question that the music that comes forth from the Jewish people is affected by the country they live in. And some of it's good and some of it's not, as we, as we very well know today. Right? So I, I have a feeling that when we're in a country and we take on a certain style of music in a pure way, that some of those nagunim that went into Golis are being brought back by the Jewish people, although we don't even realize it. People are making up songs, they're writing nagunim. I think that's part of what's happening, that we're recapturing those nagunim. Yes? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Hashem. So the, um, of course, the downside of that is all the schmutz that we pick up from the music of the 
culture as well, and that has unfortunately become a big part of Jewish music nowadays. It's very hard to identify it even as being Jewish music because it's so base. And anything that's related to authentic Jewish music, by definition, is uplifting and refined. If it's going the other direction, then that means that we latched onto it in the wrong way. So we should be zocha to do it the right way. Yeah, please, yeah. 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 Right. So there's, there's two parts to it. Let me just make it more general first. Right? Some classical music was written for the church. So Bach, for example, wrote, wrote a, a lot of church music. A lot of those early composers were writing church music. So are you allowed to listen to that? You know, we're, we're not talking about lyrics, right? If it has lyrics praising their God, then that, of course, we can't get involved in. But just the, the music itself. So essentially, it's mutter because... Once it's taken out of that context and it has no relevancy for people like us who are listening to it, then it's considered to be good music or not good music. And those compositions, many of them which are very beautiful, are acceptable to listen to. The way it was stated once by my Rebbe Zichron Livrocha, Rabbi Tversky, he said, music is not makabal tumah. Right, so if it's pure music, it's going to be pure music, no matter where it is. And if you can latch onto it and, and access it, then you have it. Now, the ones that are associated with, you know, God forbid, hor- you know, atrocities, like with the Nazis and things like that, you know, even if technically speaking, you know, one could say, well, it's removed from that environment, just on a personal level, I would have a very hard time listening to that music. People don't like to listen to uh, Wagner's music because the Nazis um, adulated him. So, and seemingly he himself uh, was, was an anti-Semitic person. So that's, I think, a personal choice as far as uh, what a person wants to listen to or not. If it creates bad associations, for me, it does. If I'm listening to classical music and I hear one of his pieces coming on, I turn it off. I just can't take it. Richard Wagner, yeah. So I just, you know, I can't, I can't live with that association, personally. Uh, and then there might be others, but I'm not, that's the main one I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, please, Debbie, please. Yeah, it's a subliminal. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the secret police type yeah, silence. Yeah, yeah, does. yeah. yeah. So those are the deep influences of sounds and music um, on us, and uh, I think we all know how uh, how elevating uh, a niggin can be, whether it's an uplifted one or a more reflective one, and it really reaches a deep part of us. Okay, so I hope that Bezras uh, Hashem, we will be able to carry forth some of the ideals of the great person that we learned about and to be zocha to understand his Torah to the best of our abilities, especially as his uh, yard site is, is approaching. 
Okay, we're going to continue now, and we're on page 16, I believe, in the Sefer HaTanya. And we are toward the bottom of that page. I'm just going to mention the very last idea we learned in the Tanya, so we get the train of thought. He's talking about the Torah being the wisdom of Hashem, and the truth is that a person is not able to grasp the wisdom of Hashem. It's too lofty. But what Hashem did is He confined His wisdom, or He constrained His wisdom. He brought it down. He was mitzamtsem His wisdom, so we could understand it. And where did He do that? He did that in the Torah. So He took His Chachma and gradually brought it down level after level after level, and then placed it in the Torah where people could understand and relate to his wisdom. And that's one of the reasons Torah is compared to water, he says, because water goes from a high place and it seeks the lowest place, it goes downward. So, so too, Torah starts from a very high place and it moves downward toward people so we can grasp it. Right? That was the last idea that we mentioned. Now, where we're going to be is one, two, three... Okay, it's five lines up on page 16, the last word of the line. And once the Torah and its mitzvos are serving as levushim, garments, like we learned about, a, a, a means of presentation for all of the facets of our soul, Thought, speech, and action. This is, uh, is that something going on here? A, a name flashed up on it. I don't know if it's doing anything. Okay. The whole Tariyage Vareha. And all of the facets of the soul, merosha v'yad ragla, from the top to the bottom. And we learned that just as there are 613 mitzvot that correspond to 613 parts of the body, there's also 613 facets of the soul. Harekula tsurura b'tsuror hachayim es Hashem So the Torah becomes completely wrapped up. You might recognize that expression, Sarura Bitsuror Hachaim. We say that in a Kelmale Rachamim for a person's neshama who's passed on. So the neshama of the person is then fully encompassed in the light of Hashem. And the light of Hashem encompasses that person from his head to his foot, top to bottom. Kamosha Kasuv, as it 